0: Good morning, everyone. Today uh, is the second to last week of our time in the book of Ephesians. And today is what I'll call uh, illustrative of exegetical or expositional preaching. Uh, Exegetical preaching is where you typically pick a Bible verse, and then you walk through it verse by verse. There's different ways people preach. Some people preach topically, where you preach a topic, and then you, you kind of go through a, those, those issues one by one. We, for the most part, will preach exegetically, where you're going through the Bible verse by verse, not always, but about 75% of the time. And the major plus to that is when you pick a book of the bible and go through it verse by verse you will be forced to deal with every single verse because there are verses and sections and passages in the bible that you would never pick to preach on on a sunday morning you're just not going to do it it's like oh you know it's time to preach leviticus 22 let's let's get it. it's my favorite when when you get to pick you kind of You know, I'll choose John 3.16. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Well, today is part of the joy of exegetical preaching because uh, there's some stuff that's going to be highly offensive to many, many people. And you wouldn't just normally wake up on a Sunday morning and pick it. Uh, In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says two incredibly offensive things. Uh, First, he says... um, That wives should submit to their husbands. And then a little bit after that, he says, slaves obey your masters. Um, So you can see, like on a normal Sunday, it's not going to be like, yeah, let's pick this. But again, the joy of going through it verse by verse is you're forced to deal with the text. And our job as Christians is not to pick and choose what we like and what we don't like about the Bible, but to do our best to submit to scripture and follow the text wherever it may lead. So, our theme for the book of Ephesians has been illustrated by these two circles. Paul has been talking about this idea that things that were normally at odds, spheres or domains, because of the work of Christ are being brought together in oneness. And at the beginning he talked about heaven and earth, becoming one. He talked about Jews and Gentiles no longer having friction, but coming together as one. And today, he's going to talk about husbands and wives coming together in oneness under the Lordship of Christ. But already, our symbolism betrays the first century context. Because in our picture, it appears as if there's a a man and a woman both equal circles, different colors, but equal size in circles, and they're both equally coming together in oneness. But in Paul's day, the image of marriage would not have looked like that. It probably would have looked something like this. And what I mean by that is up top is the husband, and that's the bigger circle. It's the more important circle. It's the more significant one, and underneath the more significant circle is the inferior circle, the wife. And the wife was to follow the rulership, and obey the husband. The husband set the rules, and the wife ought to obey them. Now, this idea is so important that it becomes codified in what the ancient world knew as household codes. And household codes go far as back 400 years before the time of Paul and Ephesians, um, all the way back to people like Aristotle. And Aristotle said that the house ought to have rules, and every unit in that house ought to obey those rules. And there was different units. There's husband, wife, children, and then slave. And all those pieces and people ought to obey the rules of the household codes. Now what all the ancient household codes had in common was that the father was the head, the lead, and ruler, Of the house. And that's the phrase pater familias. It means the father is not just like a a sort of guide or someone who sets a tone, but he is the ruler. And women, children, and slaves ought to obey the father. Now, the father had so much authority that it could be said that the dad actually had the power of life and death. And that's most dramatically illustrated in the fact that a child wasn't considered a part of the family or even a viable human being until the father accepted that child. So let's say a child was born with a certain deformity or the child that dad wanted to be a boy was a girl. The father, by his authority, could get rid of that child. Typically, you'd leave it out in the countryside and expose it to to the elements or to animals to die. Because it wasn't accepted or fully viable human until dad said so. The power of life and death was in the father's hand and women, children, and slaves should obey. Now, Aristotle and others said that the household codes that govern the house were a microcosm of the state. And what I mean by that is this, is, is if the family unit is obeying the rules and the household codes and it's stable, then the state in turn will also be able, will be be structured and stable. So it's like if you can get all the mini households, the microcosm to obey the rules and be stable, then you'll have a healthy state and culture up top. So the family is a microcosm of the state. Now, The question for Paul and the first Christians is this, what are the household codes of the new Christian family? Because Christians are going around the empire proclaiming proclaiming Jesus as king, saying there's a new way to be human, there's a new family of God. What are the implications of that? How ought families live in light of the gospel? Now you have to understand one other element. Christianity exists in a time where there's social unrest. And if you are a new religious movement contributing to more social unrest, you could find yourself dead. Because there's an order in the Roman Empire. There's structure and there's stability. And the empire wants to do everything to maintain that. And the Christians are already on the side of disrupting. I'll give you some examples. So first... The early Christian movement in the first century rejected ancestral pagan customs and the religion of their fathers. That's already a big deal. This early Christian movement, they're not converting to like, well, I used to worship Zeus, now I worship Athena. They're leaving all of them and saying Christ alone. So you're leaving behind the ancestral faith. This is causing social disruption. Two, the early Christians are going around preaching about a new king named Jesus, and that sounded a lot like revolution. There is no king but Caesar in the Roman Empire. And the first Christians are saying, no, 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 there's no king but Jesus. And that will get you into trouble. Third, we see examples of this. Paul's missionary success at Ephesus had provoked an actual riot. So the first Christians were disrupting not only the social order, but the economy to such a degree that a riot broke out. And the, the probably uh, the most famous and horrific example of social unrest caused by the Christians is the fire of 64 AD, the great fire of Rome. The then emperor Nero blamed this fire, blamed the fire on Christians. And because of that, Christians were rounded up and killed in some of the most horrific ways. They were fed to lions. They took wild beasts and they cut out their insides and put Christians inside and sewed them back up and then fed them to wild animals. They were burned alive and crucified alive. So, if you're going to give rules about how the family ought to function in first century Roman Empire, you better be careful and what Paul is going to do is he is going to both affirm what he can affirm in the traditional household codes and then subvert what he feels needs subversion and it's a very difficult, difficult text let's dig in Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, now, I know in a room this big, There is a diversity of people, and there's a spectrum of people that exist. There are some of you who, when you hear this, you're like, yeah, of course, this is how my marriage works, and I like it. It's the way my, my dad and mom were, and this is the way it's been forever, and it's great. It's great. I love it. You might fall into what we'll call the more traditional category. You affirm traditional gender roles, traditional roles within marriage. So when you hear about Paul saying, wives, submit to your husband, it doesn't cause anything in you. Then there's others who are on the other side of the spectrum, and maybe for a number of reasons. Maybe it's because you don't think this is how marriage should function. Maybe you don't affirm traditional gender roles. Maybe you uh, grew up where father quoted these Bible verses to your mom as he was being a jerk. But for whatever reason, you hear this, and you know you almost feel the wife submit, and you feel the tension, right? You look, you feel it in your bones. I'm trying to look around and see, you know, who's ready to throw punches because you're like, oh yeah, I'll submit. I'll submit these two fists, you know? <laughs> and so what I realize is that there's a wide spectrum of people. Uh, and the joy of being a pastor is that when there's that much diversity in a given room, I know no matter what happens today, at all three services, there will be people leaving mad at me. Um, so our job, again for you and for me is not to please people, not to please culture, but do our best to understand what the text is saying and follow the text wherever it may lead. That's our job as Christians. Additionally, we have to check ourselves because our culture prides itself on being so enlightened and advanced that we understand gender roles now and we understand human sexuality and we've advanced past this stuff and we all now know better about X, Y, Z. And here's what I'd like to submit to you today. Maybe a culture who says those things while simultaneously being addicted to cell phones, pornography, and any form of coping mechanism they could find on God's good green earth, maybe that culture might not have it all figured out. There might be another way. So, follow the scriptures wherever they may lead. Now, when we dig into this section, we realize there's two sides of the same coin. First, there's an admonition for wives to submit to their husbands, and then two, there's this command for husbands to love your wives. Now, it's fascinating right from the beginning is the part that offends modern people is not the part that would offended people in Paul's day. And the part that offends people in Paul's day is what we just take for granted. So, what bothers most modern people especially in like California, is what do you mean, Paul, wives submit to your husbands? What kind of backwards, sexist, misogynistic tone is that? And that's what would cause the offense for us. 2,000 years ago, everybody assumed, it wasn't debated, that the man was the head of the household, and furthermore, that everyone in that household should not just submit but to obey, should obey the husband. Now, Paul says submit. He doesn't use the word obey. It's two different Greek words. He uses the word for obey as he talks to children in the next passage. But he doesn't say that. Furthermore, when Paul tells husbands to love their wives, this is what would have caused the offense. There is not one single household in all of the entirety of the ancient literature that tells husbands to love their wives. Not one. One. We just assume, like everyone knows, everyone knows husbands should love their wives, right? We assume that because you've had 2,000 years of Judeo-Christian ethics teaching you that it's good for husbands to love their wives. But that's not just assumed, not only in Paul's day, but many cultures around the world today. But Paul sneaks in and says, look it, husbands, you better love your wives. And on top of that, it's not just love in the abstract. How ought you love them? as Christ loved the church, willing to die for. How did Christ die? The most horrific death imaginable. That's the type of love that's demonstrated. So most of us don't have any issue with husbands loving their wives, but that, that's being taken for granted. Husbands were allowed to, especially if you're a wealthy head of household, you're not only could, but you were encouraged to have sex with other women to cheat on your wife, to um, have sex and use however you want your slaves. It's normal standard practice. But Paul comes in and subverts all of that. Where we have the trouble with, the trouble with is this idea, <clears throat> that husbands are the spiritual leaders of the house. <clears throat> now again, some of you don't have any issue with this, some of you, it's, it's, it's very problematic. But what I'd like to demonstrate for you today is that husbands are the Default spiritual leaders of households, whether anyone likes it or not, whether it's right or wrong, whether you want it that way, whether you don't want it that way, it doesn't matter. By default, by nature, husbands function as the spiritual leaders of houses, even so much so that if there's not a husband in the picture, he is still in some way functioning as the spiritual leader of the house. Let me show you what I mean by that. This is becoming abundantly clear with more and more research. So let's say there's a family who's not Christian. No one's a Christian in the family. If somehow a child from that family comes to church, maybe they spent the night at at Susie's house and Susie's parents are Christian. They go to Sunday school the next next day. And, you know, little girl becomes a Christian. Little girl then says, I love Jesus now. I'm going to go try to convert mom and dad and big brother and big sister there is roughly a a a 3.5% chance that that little child will bring the rest of the family to faith. That's still, I mean, 3.5% is not great, but that's still pretty awesome if that child pulled that off, you know? 3.5% chance that the child brings the rest of the family to faith. By the way, we've had that happen at this church where a child leads the family to faith. If there's a family who's not Christian and the mother is the first one to become a Christian there is roughly a 17% chance that that new Christian mother will bring the rest of the family to faith. So small child, 3.5%. If, if the mother is the first one to become a Christian, 17%. If there is a family and no one's Christian and the father becomes a follower of Jesus, there is a 93% chance that the rest of the family becomes Christian. 93% chance. If the father follows Jesus, so goes the family. And that's, that's the raw statistics. Whether you like it or not, the husband is functioning as the one who sets the spiritual tone for the family. Another example. If you have a family who um, the mom goes to church, the mom goes to church, and dad isn't like, he's not a different religion, he doesn't even hate Christianity, he just doesn't go to church. He's like, Mom, you take the kids to church. Roughly one-third of the children brought up in that household will remain people of faith going to church in their adulthood years. One-third or less if Mom is the one taking the family to church and Dad stays at home. When Dad goes to church, two-thirds or more of the time, those children stay in the faith and continue going to church in their adulthood years. Just the way it works, because dad by default is setting the tone. Additionally, there's there's been fascinating research done in, in many different areas, but one coming out of John Hopkins um, that looked at major diseases, and this is outside this is outside of faith and religion. This is just in the big picture. They looked at things like heart disease, hypertension, cancer, suicidality, depression. And they said, what what do all these things have in common? And certainly there was a lot of things in common that people had that had multiple of these conditions. But one thing came up again and again and again and again was that people who are more likely to suffer from one of these conditions would say when asked that they never had a close relationship with their father. Now follow this. Think about this. Are you more likely to get cancer if you don't have a good relationship with your dad? This is bending our categories, right? Because we don't think like this. What do you mean like cancer is like, I could see if you smoke too much, but like how does not having a good relationship with dad make you more likely to get cancer? Right, it bends our categories. Question, do you think the stress and trauma of growing up without a father or your dad leaving you when you're five, that that stress and trauma might make you more likely to develop cancer? Do you think that high stress levels in critical adolescent years might have a biological effect on you? And the answer is absolutely right. Absolutely. You're more likely to suffer a number of things just if you're an anxious person. That drives anxious people crazy because then they go, I got to stop being anxious. Stop it. You're killing yourself. Oh gosh, I'm killing myself. Time and time again, the research will show that if dad's not there, mom and the children suffer. Additionally, um, we have a massive father-husband problem in this country. There's millions of single parents in America right now, but what do you think is the percentage of single dads versus single moms raising the kids? It's a little more than 80% of the time, it's the moms struggling to raise the family and dad left. Now, there's tons of faithful dads holding it down, raising the kids, but statistically, 80% of the time, if it's a single-parent household, it's a single mom trying to hold it down because dads left, went on to other things. So husbands and fathers, by default, whether you like it or not, set the spiritual tone and are the spiritual leaders of the family. In Paul's day, no one questioned... Not only that, but no one questioned the idea that the the husband was the ruler of the family. Paul's not even going that far. But no one questioned this idea of leadership or spiritual tone. The question then for the first Christian was, was not whether that was a reality or not. The question was, how ought men lead as fathers and husbands? And to that, Paul gives us this answer. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. So again, what does the love of the father look like? It's supposed to look like Jesus and Jesus lays down his life. This is an interesting thing. The Bible doesn't spell out, but I was talking about it with pastor Kevin during the week. Um, <clears throat> the Bible calls husbands to lay down, their wives, lay down their lives for their wives. Right? Lay down your life. It never says, wives, be ready to lay down your life for your husband. Now, I'm not saying that it would be like morally wrong for a wife to die for her husband. But if your wife is going to get shot, the command for the husband is, you take the bullet. You lay down your life. I'm not saying it would be wrong if a woman took a bullet for her husband. I'm just saying it's interesting that when it comes to scripture, men are given that type of command and women aren't. Men are supposed to be the laying down of life type of men, the loving their bride as Christ loved the church type of men. That's the command. And Paul goes more, I mean, there's some radical things he says here. He says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. In 1 Corinthians, he goes farther than that and says this scandalous line and says that the husband's body does not belong to the husband, but the husband's body belongs to the wife. Can you imagine Paul saying that 2,000 years ago where all the household codes said that there's man and then there's everything underneath him below his feet and he is sent by God to rule over them and they should obey And Paul goes, oh yeah, men, the spiritual leaders, but don't you know, men, your body is not your own? It belongs. Your wife owns your body. It belongs to her. And likewise, it's mutual. I mean, that's profound statements to be making. Now, I want to briefly talk about what this spiritual leadership is not. And I want to be sensitive here because there are people here who I know who grew up in churches or households where these types of Bible verses were held over your head. You know? It's where the man like, listen up woman. The Bible says submit and obey. And the church tells you, hey woman, know your role, know your place. And even if your husband is horrible, he's, you know, there's one Bible verse he knows. It's not even John three sixteen. it's submit. So I want to, I want, I want to demonstrate what this looks like and what it doesn't look like. <clears throat> so first, it is not a call for obedience. There's a different word for obey than submit in Greek, and Paul uses that word in a, in a few verses, and he uses it for children. So if you're a child in the room, you're out of luck. It's obey. Second, it does not make the husband, the boss, and the wife his servant. Three, it does not lead to the wife's loss of herself. It does not mean that the wife loses her voice and decisions are made unilaterally. It does not set the wife up for any type of abuse. We have to be sensitive here because in the church, in the Christian world, people have used these Bible verses to keep women in abusive situations. And this should never be. And there's a reason for that. Because the first Christians said things like, you better obey the state. The state is appointed by God. So do your best to be a good law-abiding citizen and don't question the state. Just keep your nose down. Do what you're supposed to do. But then, they also said, if the state makes you do something that's breaking one of God's law, obey God, not men. And it's the same principle. You are to submit to earthly authorities to the degree or to the extent that they then, in turn, make you do something that would violate a command of God. So the first Christians would would do as much as they could. They'd pay their taxes. So you can't get out of that. Um, But they wouldn't, offer sacrifices to Caesar as a God. You obey God before you obey men. So this is a list from a commentary by Clinton Arnold on when a wife, and this isn't an exhaustive list, this is just an example of when a wife ought to cease submitting to a husband. One, if there's a violation of a biblical principle or command. Two, there's a compromise of her relationship with Christ. And these aren't like independent. They kind of go hand in hand. Um, meaning, you might, by violating a principle or a command, that might cause a compromise or relationship with Christ. Violate her conscience. This is probably the most, one of the most important ones. Compromise the care, nurture, and protection of her children. If there's a possibility of your children being hurt... You don't. No matter what a church says, just be a good wife and pray it gets better. You get those babies out of that situation, and you ask the church to help you in that. Five enable a sin of the husband. Six and what we it kind of encapsulates all of this: subject her to physical, sexual, or emotional abuse, because all of those things would have you submit to men before god these are superseding there's an attempt to supersede the law of god and for some of you you're like why are we even going going over this of course you should leave if if there's an abusive situation to children i'm telling you and some of you have been in the church world a long time many people have stayed in situations that they should not have because they were told just to be a good wife And I'm not saying if one of these things happens, it means an automatic, you know, there was one, there's a mess up, and then you go to divorce. I'm not not even talking about that. I'm talking about safety. I'm talking about safety right now. So on the opposite end, what does a husband who loves his wife like Christ look like? Well, you can just do a game in your head. What does Christ do for his bride, the church? What does Christ do and what does he give and what does he say? And then likewise, at minimum, husbands should try to embody that for their wives. So this list, again, isn't exhaustive, but just, just a few things. One, <clears throat> speak affirming words. What do the scriptures tell you? That you are loved, that you are cherished, that God sent his son for you. They affirm you and encourage you. And Likewise, a husband ought to do that for his wife. Two, lovingly care for her phys- physically until death. Got to be careful here uh, because despite what modern culture says, men and women are different and they often define words differently. So a man might read lovingly care for her physically as radically different than what she might mean by that. And what I mean by that in this moment is, let's say she's 42 and she has a stroke so bad she never recovers and you have to care for her for the rest of her life. You, the husband... You care for her for the 40 or 50 years still to go. And you serve her and you tell her you love her every single day and you do whatever you can to take care of her physical needs till death do you part. It's not about your needs, husband. It's about Christ and his church and you're supposed to embody that. Three, develop eyes for her alone. I I was a youth pastor before, and I I had the uh, privilege of telling junior hires and high schoolers, uh, especially the the girls, basically, because the guys already knew this, um, that biologically something changes in a boy in junior high where he develops eyes for every living, walking, breathing girl on the face of the planet. And all of his resources, physiologically, biologically, they're all just thinking about one thing all of the time. All of the time. And it's kind of sad, but this is, this is the truth of it. Men by nature do not have eyes for one woman. Men do not have eyes for one woman. I'm not going to speak for a woman. I'm not, I'm not a woman. But men have to develop eyes for their bride and their bride alone for the rest of their life. And so what Christian men do is say, I only want eyes for my wife. Why? Because Christ only has eyes for his bride. And you model that and for the rest of your life you develop that. And in time you will be more and more victorious with that. But it's not given by default, by nature. Guard against harmful tones and words. Because men and women are different, it's easy for men. And I I fall into this a lot. I could be straight to the point and short and rude with everybody. Um but that may not be the nurturing environment that a husband ought to create. Five, give gifts. You're like, oh yeah, I'm gonna bring up the gifts, huh? Of course, why? We're supposed to be like Christ. What did Paul just talk about, if you were here two weeks ago, that Christ did for the church? He gave gifts to the church. He just talked about that. So husbands ought to give gifts to their wives. And you say, oh man, here you go, then she, I ain't got no money, man. You just heard a sermon about getting gifts? Man, I ain't got no money. Write a poem, dude. Write a poem. Oh, man, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. draw a picture. Oh, I'm not a good, good. sing a song, man. Oh, I'm, I'm tone deaf, I'm really pitchy. Download auto-tune on your phone and sing a song and play it back. You give gifts. <clears throat> and ultimately, you learn to deny yourself for her needs deny yourself for her needs. So all of this is what a godly spiritual leadership looks like. That's what it looks like. And by default, men, you are setting the tone whether you like it or not. And your wife and kids will suffer immensely if you don't put the weight of that responsibility on your back and carry it like Christ carried his cross. Paul moves on and says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. All right, we've talked about it in the past, talked about this in the past, but what Paul is saying is profound. He's saying that earthly marriage, the institution of marriage here on earth is a mystery. And the reason why it's a mystery is that it actually serves a greater purpose than just the earthly marriage itself. The earthly marriage is meant to point to the greater marriage. The greater marriage is Christ and his people, Christ and his bride, Christ and the church earthly marriage is an institution embedded in the created order to point people to the ultimate marriage. Or another way of saying it would be this, how you love each other in marriage should be a living, walking, ser- living, walking breathing sermon for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not an end of itself. The earthly marriage is the appetizer. It's the mirror that reflects that which is most true. So ask yourself, what sermon is your marriage preaching? Is it one that looks like the gospel? Or is it something different? Is it the gospel or not? And there's good news for singles at this point. Very good news for singles. And you might find yourself single in this room for a number. There's a number of different reasons. Um, divorce, um, never married, widowhood. Number of reasons, but there's, there's the great, the first, the great news is you got to worry about any of this stuff that I just been talking about for 20 minutes. So even, it's, it's about to be a, applicable to you right now. Okay. No. Okay. That's not the good news. The good news is this. If you are single and you are not married in an earthly sense, then you are, if you are a follower of Jesus, bypassing the earthly institution and symbol and appetizer and going straight to the ultimate reality, which is the marriage of Christ and the church. If you are single, you are bypassing the earthly institution and going to the ultimate reality. This is why you have to have a healthy theology of singleness because in the early church, people were single and dedicated themselves in celibacy to the Lord. Paul the Apostle says, look, the second you get married, you're gonna be more distracted. You're not gonna serve the Lord as well. Like, when did you have more time for the Lord? Before or after them five babies. So there's a type of faithfulness that the single can commit to God that married people can't. And that's a good thing. Now, don't get me wrong. There's some of you who are single, but you, you, you want to get married. And so... You've got to distinguish between those who aspire into marriage, but also those who are living out their singleness faithfully until God would call them out of that. And they are bypassing the earthly institution and going straight to what the earthly institution points to. <clears throat> now, he's going to switch gears. He's going to leave marriage behind and talk about children next. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is Right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. <clears throat> we're not going to spend much time here because in a series coming up, we're going to talk a lot more about this, but, but three quick important notes. First, Paul addresses children directly, which means the children were a part of the community of faith. As this letter was being read out loud in the churches, there was children to hear it. They were acknowledged when they were in the room. Now, this may not be a big deal to modern people because we elevate children. Um, and I'll show you in a second. We elevate them to a degree that is not good. But many cultures, many places around the world today, the children, like, they're, they're human, but... Mm, We'll teach them the Bible when they hit 15 years of age or 13 years of age. I've been to other places in the world where children aren't allowed in the church. So you have a small church room of 100 adults and the little kids gather around the church building and try to peek their head into the windows and there's someone there with a stick to slap them out of the window. Hey, stop bothering us, child. You'll be an adult one day and you can hear the scriptures. Standard practice. But for the cultures of the ancient world, Paul goes, no, the children are included. And I'm, going to, I'm not talking to mom or dad right now, I'm talking to the children. This is powerful. See, in our, in our culture, it's the exact opposite. We, we rightfully so value children, but like to a degree that's unreasonable. So, like every election cycle, you hear about like, you know, children are innocent. They're the ones who really see the world how it is. And we just need to listen to their voice. And then someone will say, yeah, and we should lower the voting ages so that children can participate too. It's like, Come on, man, I got, you got a five-year-old, they'll believe whatever you tell them. I could tell my four-year-old, hey, dude, you know, you want to know where rainbows come from? There's these purple dragons in Antarctica, and when they blow their nose, the rainbow comes out, man. <laughs> my son will go, really, Dada? Yeah, for sure. all I'll says is this. When a culture is refusing to mature, they will idolize childhood and adolescence to a degree that stunts maturity. You got to find the right balance. You got to find the right balance. And here we see Paul addressing children. And he says, honor your parents. And this is based on the commandment, honor your father and mother, which is again subversive because all the other household codes would say, obey your father. But here the parents are included, both mom and dad. Mom is seen as a spiritual leader in the household as well. She is raising the children in these cases. And she is given that spiritual authority. So children aren't just supposed to obey dad. They're supposed to obey and honor both mom and dad. And then the verse four would stick out because it says, fathers do not provoke your children to anger. In the household codes of the day, this verse would have read, children do not provoke your father to anger. And thus receive a beating. Because that was the standard practice. The fathers they just saw how their fathers raised and how their fathers raised. And you know how you discipline children? You beat them. That was standard practice. And so Paul subverts this. He comes in and says, You expect me to say, children, just shut up, be quiet, and don't provoke your fathers to anger. But fathers, I'm telling you, do not provoke your children to anger. Lastly, Extremely controversial, Paul addresses bondservants. Now, I want to be real here. This word for bondservant here in Greek is doulos, and it could be translated servant, bondservant, or slave. But I don't want to dance around or be squirmish around some of the realities that Scripture addresses. And I think it's a bad translation to say bondservants to modern people because we don't get the real picture. He's talking about slaves. Let me read this and we're going to break it down. Slaves, bondservants, servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone has done, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant, slave, or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there's no partiality with him. Okay, first thing, this word bondservant, loss, slave, defines a group of people that represented one-third of the entire Roman Empire. Roughly one-third of the entire Roman Empire is slave, and that word slave has a wide spectrum. On one end, <clears throat> a slave could be a highly educated, respected individual in the household, They still carried the status of slave, but their life had provision, education. They might have been more educated than the person who was their owner. And there's stories of of freedom being granted and the person saying, no, I wanna stay in this situation. This is good for me. So that's what slave could mean in the Roman Empire. On the opposite end, it could also mean the horrific treatment of another image bearer, another human being there were slaves that were treated horrifically. Less than human, they were treated worse than animals. And this is more akin to what we're used to defining a slave, especially as expressed here in American history. Where people, because of the color of their skin, were determined to be slaves and treated in ways that were subhuman and worse than animals. Americans treat their pets better than human beings have been treated. And so within that one-third of the entire population of the Roman Empire, you have that word slave being expressed. Now, at this time, Christians represent less than 1% of the entire population of the Roman Empire. Less than 1%. What we want as modern people is for Paul to say, Christians, you must abolish slavery, overthrow the institution of slavery. The revolution begins today. Trust in Christ and go. That's what we want, right? We we want Paul to be explicit in his statement. Start the revolution, get rid of the institution. However, people had talked like that in Paul's day. There had been many revolutions like this. And every single time, the same thing happened. Rome would squash the revolution and rebellion and line the roads with crosses. And then, by the thousands, begin to crucify men, women, and in some cases, children. And they were let there to suffer nailed to crosses for several days, begging for death. So, Paul the Apostle knows the situation. By the way, the one he serves received the slave's death. Christ was the crucified one. And so how does Paul the Apostle, in the midst of the social dynamics, representing less than 1% of the population, begin to subvert the evil practice of slavery? How does he do this? The first Christians, who many of them were slaves would say things like this Don't you, don't you know owners of other human beings owners of slaves don't you know that there's neither slave nor free in Christ Don't you know that you are to treat the slave as a brother or a sister Don't you know that God is your master and when he looks down upon you and the one you call slave He only sees the same thing. He shows no partiality. And don't you know that by the way you treat that person, your master will judge you? So what Paul does, and the first Christians do, is they embed and insert Christian ethics into the institution of slavery. And the idea and the hope was that as you insert Christian ethics into the institution of slavery, that the institution would crumble from the inside out. And by the way, that's exactly what happened historically. The big problem is it took way too long. It took way too long. It was Christians and Christian cultures who abolished the institution of slavery. To this day, there's still slavery. But it's going to be in places where the gospel didn't take root. Because as the gospel took root and grew, the abolishment of slavery came after. The biggest sin of Christians was that it took way too long. And then conversely, modern people either belittle slavery or act like it wasn't that big of a deal or act like it wasn't just yesterday that it was still occurring. But what Christianity does is inserts the ethics and then subverts the system from the inside out because Christians don't start bloody revolutions. The gospel takes hold of the evil institutions and bring it down from the inside out. So, wait, wait. You treated a servant like what? Don't you know that God will judge you, his servant, by the way you treated the, don't you know that's a brother or sister? Don't you know you serve the same judge? So it's a way to radically subvert. And the ushers can begin passing out communion. All of this ties into the idea that no matter where you're at in life, you're a husband, you're a father, you're single, wherever you're at, you will go before the only real judge in existence. And he will judge you by how you exercise the responsibilities that were granted to you. So husbands and fathers, great responsibility has been given to you. You will go to God and answer for that. Did you lead in a Christ-like manner? Because if you didn't, you'll have to answer for that. You know, there's sometimes you got to remind people about the love of God. Got to remind, God loves you. And then sometimes you have to remind them that you should fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so men in the room, are you behaving like Christ? If not, fear God and repent because you will have to answer to him. Secondly, I want to encourage those of you who you hear the statistics and it's depressing. It's like, I'm that single mother trying to drag my, teenager, my teenage boys to church and it's so difficult. My encouragement for you is hang in there and keep going. Even though a father or a husband or a man might have left the picture or failed you, the church is a new family where there's new big brothers And God Himself is a father to your children. And He's a better father than any earthly father could ever be. So you don't let the statistics tell the story, you let Jesus tell the story. And you come in and let others bring support around you. And then there's some of you who hear messages like this and are depressed because you're like, my kids are already grown, man, and I already blew it. It's too late. I'm not going to easily comfort you and just say, "Oh, it's not a, not a big. It is a big deal." And that's why you need to, to repent before God of those failures. And you might need to call up your kids and apologize. I'm sorry how I've wronged you. You might need to call up a woman or your ex-wife and own up to some stuff. But before God, you repent, and then you ask him to work with whatever time you have left. And even if this is the last day you live, that's still enough time for God to do stuff within your family. And one of the beautiful things about working out a church is I've seen God do some really good stuff with some families. And some of you know, right? It's like, man, my family was whack. And I don't know how God got us here and landed us here, but here we are. And God in his grace did the miraculous for us. And so as we prepare our hearts for communion, I want some of us to reflect on the promises of God, especially those of you who have anxious thoughts or are worried because... There's not a dad there, or maybe you're a single father and mom's not there. Remind yourself of the truth of Scripture. You're in a new family with a new father, and big brother Jesus died for you. You pour your, those Scriptures over you. And then I want to sharply challenge the men and single them out because our culture has, has a man problem. We don't have fathers and husbands serving faithfully. I mean, there there are obviously some, but to a large degree, we're seeing the massive failure at that. And we're in a very dangerous time because as men forsake their roles, culture simultaneously is telling women, especially young women, that what's wrong with the world is strong, powerful men and what the world really needs is a bunch of weak men. This is the message for young people. And trust me, there is nothing more dangerous than a weak man. Weak men will betray you. Weak men will save their own skin at your expense. Weak men will lie to you. Weak men will deceive because it's all about them. What the world needs is strong men and strength defined by the standard of Christ. And so men, today might be the, the day you need to repent and change your ways. Let's stand as we take communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he says, this is my body broken for you. If you've experienced unfaithfulness in marriage by a husband or a wife, this is the broken body of the faithful spouse who will never leave you nor forsake you. And the cup is the blood of the new covenant. New covenant is marriage language. How much does Jesus love you? Enough to spill his blood. He will be faithful to you even till the end of the age. He goes to prepare a place for you. And in his father's house, there are many rooms. And so Lord, until you come back and take up your bride into the father's house, we pledge our faithfulness to you. as we close in prayer, if anyone needs extra prayer, you want to talk with someone, our prayer team will be up front. Father God, um, we give you thanks for the work of your son, Jesus, that he is the faithful one, that he is the one who suffers for his bride, who sacrifices for his bride. May we in turn embody him and be Christ-like to the world. For all people, as Ephesians said, are called to be imitators of God. And so may we do that in whatever relationship context we find ourselves in. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.